The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. I'm joined by the master of controversy, Father Anthony Chicada. Father, uh, I'm glad that you made it through Holy Week and, and, the, and Easter Week after, and uh, we're happy to have you with us. I'm very happy to be here to stir up whatever controversy I can, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, I alluded to Holy Week, uh, Father, and you, you've gone through that. And I think uh, on a previous episode, a couple seasons back, I asked you about the various names for uh, Dominican Albis, uh, Quasimodo Sunday, Low Sunday, and I think you remarked that Low Sunday maybe because that's how you all are feeling after a, a long uh, week of uh, Holy Week uh, liturgy. And uh, but you got to celebrate what we know as, or uh, we know, I suppose some of us call the real Holy Week. And uh, one of the things that we we haven't talked about it's going to be a future trad controversies episode is the 1962 missile so part mm-hmm. of that is the assumption if we're talking about a pre-1955 missile we're talking about the non-novus ordo holy week whereas anyone who's celebrating anything after 1955 whether they they like it or not the reality is they're doing the novus ordo holy week and all the ramifications uh, that that lie therein and as we were talking before the show you said that this issue has gone from maybe, let's say, uh, a pet, uh, a pet uh, preoccupation of the liturgical nerd to uh, rather mainstream uh, acceptance. Uh, yes, indeed, it has. Uh, the uh, I speak about this a little bit of in uh, work of human hands, but when I uh, talk about the question about which missile one should use, that uh, initially in the uh, 70s, the beginning of the 1970s, uh, there were uh, actually only a a very few people who uh, latched on to this issue of the uh, new Holy Week versus the old Holy Week. And uh, it was uh, Father uh, Peter Morgan, who was the uh, first priest in the society ordained by Archbishop Lefebvre, and also a, a certain uh, seminarian named Daniel Dolan, who uh, made the rest of us aware of this uh, particular issue. And it uh, was um, the, the, the interest in it, and the interest in, in cultivating and, and preserving the whole uh, Old Holy Week um, it was uh, arose first among the English speakers, what the French call the Anglophones, and then uh, eventually the uh, Germans. But uh, for many years, 
on the part of of uh, many other traditional Catholics. It was looked at uh, as sort of a hobby issue or something that was very, uh, I guess you would say, obscure. That why should people really be worried about this? But it's it's interesting that now after all these years, this is an this is an issue that uh, many people who would be considered mainstream traditionalists are talking about. So it's, it's it's very interesting to see how this has has uh, changed in 40 years. Well, and I don't don't like talking about feelings when we talk about these matters, Father, because I think there's a there's a cold blooded way that we can look at this. But I think it's useful. You start one of your most well known pamphlets, the Welcome to the Traditional Latin Mass, and uh, also in Work of Human Hands, with this idea that people know deep down in their bones something's wrong. There's, some, there's something wrong here. And I think for me, the first time uh, that I uh, experienced the, the new Holy Week, uh, I was a new Latin mass goer. And I, you know, the 62 Missile has its, its, its challenges and its issues for, for, for sure and certain, but the contrast with Holy Week is still pretty big. And when you get to Holy Week and you, you're, you're saying the Our Father... <laughs> With with the uh, with the priest, you think, wait a minute, this is this is very disconcerting. Especially having just come from the Novus Ordo, we think we're transported back to the time when everything was was good and certain. And I suppose that might be a jumping off point for some people. They've never seen the the Holy Week that you celebrated last week at Saint Gertrude's with with all mm-hmm. the clergy there. So they've only seen the the new Holy Week, uh, but uh, unwittingly they're assisting at the Novus Ordo Holy Week. Well, this was something also that struck me even before I was really attuned to these different issues, because I had gone from um, a uh, Novus Ordo seminary, uh, uh, from which I actually uh, functioned as uh, uh, music director of local Novus Ordo parish, and I kept things as conservative as, as possible according to the book. And I saw what we did there, so I was very familiar with the Novus Order rubrics. And then I, I entered a conservative religious order called the Cistercians, which I've talked about before. And they, of course, were even more conservative and did all sorts of stuff in Latin. And my last Holy Week with them in the Latin version of the Novus Ordo was in 1975 in the Monastery of Otrave. From uh, Otrave, eventually I entered a cone the Pius X Seminary in, in southern Switzerland. And my first Holy Week experience uh, there was in, in 76. And I remember my reaction was, wait a minute, there is not an awful lot in the way of differences between the Latin Novus Order Holy Week I did in the Cistercians and this thing. So that was something that's very striking. Well, and you've done a number of articles over the years, and uh, one of the clandestine reasons for having Restoration Radio is to to get people to unwittingly read your articles, Uh, although, you know, reading is that that terrible burden that, that so many moderns face. And in well, we, we wish they would go from unwitting to witting by reading witty, the articles. That yes. <laughs> <laughs> they may be witting, oh Lord. Uh, and... <laughs> There are two uh, sets of articles that you can uh, use to either follow along in today's uh, episode or after the episode, you can go and, as Father Chikata once told uh, a very young and lost uh, version of myself, to go look it up after the episode. 
uh, you can go and see it. And Father has footnotes for all the points that, that he makes. So there's two issues. One is the legal issue. We're supposed to obey the last Holy Father, Father Chikada. And that, that, that's a great gotcha argument. And then the changes themselves. So we need to talk about those two points. So the first issue is the legal issue. And Father deals with this if you go to traditionalmass.org and you go to uh, the um, click on articles and then click on liturgy, John the 23rd and Pius the 12th changes. The first article that Father wrote is called, Is Rejecting the Pius the 12th Reforms Illegally? And he penned this in April of 2006. And Father, if, if you don't mind, I'll just read you the question that you were uh, emailed that you responded to. Um, regarding, so there's two questions. The first one said, I was wondering how you justify rejection of the Holy Week reforms, quote unquote, under Pius XII. If the principle of Epikaia is invoked, it would seem this does not apply given the validity of the reigning pontiff and his rightful authority to make such changes. I was under the impression that Epikaia only worked when a law began to work against the common good and needed to be ignored. And further, uh, in reading the arguments from 1955 for the reasons in the changes, the innovators talked of returning to earlier traditions and of simplification of the ceremonies, both of those in quotes. The same arguments made later for the entire Novus Ordo. Admittedly, the whole thing stinks of Bugnini. However, I have two main questions. What does it say to us of Pope Pius XII in those latter years for permitting and utilizing this new ceremony? And also, since we've been in interregnum since 1958, what justifications do we utilize to individually celebrate the older ceremonies, which were replaced before 1958, without making it appear that we are picking and choosing which ceremonies we want to utilize? So I suppose that's a, a great jumping off point for us, Father. Uh, how, how would you answer those reasonable questions? Yeah, and, and, and indeed, it's it's a very, very reasonable set of questions uh, that you have there. And uh, what you do is you look at the uh what gets you thinking about the initial the the issue initially is the uh resemblances between the uh, uh, novus ordo holy week and the new holy week so that so uh, how do you deal with that particular question in terms of church law well uh, as with so many issues that traditional catholics face, you have to look at some general principles. And the one uh, general principle in uh, church law is that a law is uh, supposed to have an element of stability or perpetuity to it. That, uh, sure, a, a law that is um, uh, a law that the, that the church uh, promulgates can be changed by uh, another lawgiver somewhere uh, down the road. There's no question about that. But the the law itself has to have this this element of what's called perpetuity or stability uh, to it. What you find when you uh, look at the documentation. Uh, about the 1955 changes is that uh, it was was viewed very clearly as um, a, as uh, transitional. That uh, the authors of the uh, New Holy Week, Bugnini and Company, at that point, spoke of it as as a bridge between the old and the new, or as an arrow indicating the direction. Uh, and they talked about. Uh, things being done that were only the first step toward a wider uh, 
reform. And so, so there's, there's this type of language. And then when you uh, go and, and research the background documents, you'll see that there is a, a big, long uh, document in Italian on, uh, called the Memoria on the Liturgical Reform. And it clearly outlines the, uh, it's, it's a couple hundred pages, like 600 pages, it outlines the direction that things are going. So you see then in the legislation this idea that it is not something that's, that's stable, that the laws promulgating it are intended to be transitional until you can get to the next, um, uh, the next point in the liturgical journey. So uh, from uh, that point of view, the, the, uh, the, the uh, notion in church law of perpetuity and stability, um, it is certainly justified to say that, that these um, laws, while they had been binding then, uh, certainly when we look at the context now, we see that we are not bound by them. The second point is uh, has is a general principle in church law that I think we've talked about before when it comes to the different uh, uh, permissions that normally would re- be required for a priest, say, to give a, a sermon in uh, a diocese or to offer mass in a diocese uh, that's not his own diocese or uh, to hearing confessions. Yeah, hear hear confessions. All the things that we traditional priests do. Uh, our general approach to those laws is that, well, uh, they uh, are laws that were promulgated for the common good, but now because of a change of circumstance, those uh, uh, laws actually work against the common good and have a harmful effect, and so they cease to bind us. And that's called in church law the principle of cessation, intrinsic cessation of uh church law. So uh, when it comes to the liturgical question, well, what are the, uh, what about the, the, the nature of these, these different uh, liturgical changes? Well, if you look in the, at them in the context of the Novus Ordo, uh, they give uh, support to something that is the, the false idea that the general Vatican II liturgical reform actually arose out of some sort of a, a, uh, a, a profound um, uh, tradition in the church, and uh, and it was was consistent with the um, development of the sacred liturgy of the church. And so, it, 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 these changes, observing these changes in the 50s, give legitimacy to the idea that the Novus Ordo is uh, entirely in line with tradition, which of course it's not. So, uh, from that point of view, uh, the uh, the law would cease because it has a uh, it, it has this this uh, deleterious effect. It, it gives credence to the Novus Ordo, and in the, the very do- document promulgating the Novus Ordo, in fact, uh, the first thing uh, Paul the Sixth talks about is the uh, Pius the Twelfth changes, and and how that that was a uh, that what we see in the Novus Ordo is just one more step. So. 
the uh, idea then is that this obviously is, is a bad effect of the legislation, and you're not bound by it. And so on those two points, on those two points, uh, cessation of law and lack of perpetuity or, or stability, um, you're not uh, uh, bound by the legislation. Now, uh, the quotes that Father is giving us from Bugnini himself is from a book called uh, The Simplification of the Rubrics, which came from 1955. And I'm sure if you uh, want exact page numbers, we, we might be able to, to get them for you. But uh, there are some replies to um, these points from Father that Father addressed in a follow-up article, more on the legal issue, also posted on traditionalmass.org. So the response then to your issue of stability, your, your point about stability, Father, is that, uh, firstly, um, the quotes are from Bugnini, not from Pius XII. So we have to look at the intentions of Pius XII, I suppose, versus the intentions of Bugnini. Um, and I suppose there's an implied question here about Pius XII, which I don't know if you want to get into in this episode. I suppose Pius XII might be a, a trad controversies episode all by himself. But um, I suppose there's those those two points, the in, quote unquote intentions of Pius XII and uh, and, and what uh, what the legacy of Pius XII is in this particular point. OK, well, I mean, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, first question is, so we, we have talked about Bugnini, OK, and, and his different uh, quotes from the simplification of the rubrics, but the. Uh, document that um, we mentioned the the 1948 uh, memoria on the on a general uh, on a general liturgical reform. Uh, this was something that uh, uh, Pius uh, Pius XII knew about. Uh, it was presented to him in uh, 19. It was presented to him in, in uh, 1948, and if you go through the document, you see that the memoria uh, itself it talks about uh, what's being done as is uh, being aimed toward a general and complete revision of the liturgy of successive phases uh, uh, that have to be taken care of, uh, that um, uh, eventually you'll get to a code of liturgical law that will stabilize uh, and it uses that word in, in Italian. Uh, it will guarantee the, the stabilità of the uh, liturgical reform. So the, the whole language of the document that Pius the Twelfth uh, uh, was presented with and 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 read, and it was the background for him approving this legislation, was the based on this idea that uh, there would be a series of temporary uh, temporary stages. And that uh, you know, eventually you might end up with stability, but what you had in the meantime was this transitory legislation. There was temporary steps leading to something else. So uh, when you look at that, uh, yeah, well, sure, it was Pius the Twelfth himself regarded it as transitory. Well, so that's the second part of my my question, Father. What does that mean that Pius the Twelfth was okay with? With a series of transitional liturgical changes, can we can we pierce the veil for what his vision was, or was he being hoodwinked? And, and I suppose neither of the answers to those really matter. But how does it apply to how we look at Pius XII's changes here, apart from what you were saying? 
Well, we obviously you look at what you've got, but you you try to figure out how could this guy who was um, uh, impeccable uh, when it came to doctrinal matters drop the ball on uh, you know some sort of a practical a practical issue like this legislation on uh, the liturgical reform. And I think that's that's an issue more to do with Pius XII's personality. That he was a uh, he tended to be rather um, in the clouds when it came to uh, his his uh, uh, his his different ideals, and he simply didn't realize what was going on. So if you're looking for some sort of uh, explanation as regards how some of this could have been achieved. Uh, you'll find it there. Also, remember the, the most um, uh, radical of the reforms were instituted, uh, were approved during his his illness in the mid 50s, and the only people who really had access to him were uh, Montini, and of course we know how he ended up, and Bea, uh, who was his confessor. And Bea was the uh, one of the big ecumenists at Vatican II, so these these guys had uh, uh, had a program, as it were, of their own. And in fact, in his biography or in his his memoirs, Bugnini boasts of this that they had access through these men, and that's how they were able to get some of the liturgical reforms through, despite resistance that they had in other quarters. So, if you want some sort of an explanation for it, uh, you find it. I think there in the psychology of Pius the Twelfth, he didn't. You know, his, his practical judgment was, um, uh, you know, not always exactly on target. We um, we recently did a listener uh, a member survey, and one of the comments that kept coming up is that you know there's lots of people who listen to Restoration Radio who are who are new to. Um, in Catholicism as it always has been, they, they've come to us from the Novus Ordo or other places, and there there might have been a, a sharp intake of breath when the the words "drop the ball" and "Pius XII" were in the same sentence, and you know, it, it, I I felt a little air come out of my my microphone, and I thought, well, we should you should probably give give a, a bit more background to that because I think. Uh, we're we're used to we're used to Father Chicada on Francis Watch, and we know what we think of the, the post-Vatican II claimants, and and they provide us with the the news stories uh, every month. But with Pius XII, there's there's as I say, it may be a trad controversies episode on all on its own. But uh, do you find that people are uncomfortable when you say that uh, that Pius XII did anything wrong, given that he's uh, the last pope that we can look back to and recognize as pope? Well, I, uh, I, I think there's some <laughs> sensitivity among people and, shall we say, clerics on this issue. <laughs> well, I mean that yes, uh, uh, there is in some quarters, but I think that if if you listen, if uh, you on the other hand, you do have many people who listen to the articles and who figure that well, someone must have been uh, for Vatican II to happen. Um, uh, someone must have been uh, letting up a little in certain areas where he shouldn't have let up. And that leads you to the con- conclusions about uh, Pius XII. If you understand you know, his, his uh, uh, background and, and uh, you see how he actually uh, dealt with um, uh, 
controversies and with with uh, people who should have been dealt with severely, uh, then the explanation I think seems uh, seems most reasonable. Well, and now we're going to get into those changes. I think we've we've fairly dealt with the the questions and the objections for the the the, the first two points you brought up, which were cessation and stability. There were a couple other points that that people had brought up, and uh, I suppose we can we can deal with those rather quickly because they're they're not they're not big um, objections I think compared to the first two. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does this how does this issue the fact that you're rejecting a a Holy Week that was promulgated by a pope a valid pope mm-hmm. how does this relate to indefectibility? Yeah, the, the the issue is the, the church is indefectible and cannot promulgate a, a, um, a universal disciplinary law which is evil or which which harms uh, doctrine. But as regards the issue that we're talking about, all theologians teach that a law that uh, was not uh, evil at the time, uh, not evil in itself at the time, is, is was promulgated uh, can uh, uh, become harmful later on through the passage of time because the human legislator uh, cannot foresee all the possible circumstances in the future uh, for an ecclesiastical law. So it's not really an objection to say that um, you had a, the uh, uh, to say that well rejecting these changes mean, meaning uh, means that the church uh, defects. No, it's, it's, it's very clear from the teaching of canonists that you can have you know, have changed circumstances. So something that uh, was not harmful in itself uh, can, after the passage of time, be harmful. Uh, the the obje- objection that follows on from indefectibility is Father Jakarta is just engaging in his own, uh, shall we say, Schmidberger shift. Uh, by uh, deciding what he wants to obey from from which pope, how do you respond to that? Father? Well, the uh, the answer to that is that first we're simply applying legal principles, and secondly, uh, the pope is dead. Uh, we're not saying that there is a living pontiff, and that we're going to uh, sift all of his different statements and. Uh, reject what we think is not Catholic and uh, accept what we think is Catholic. That's a, a different thing from what we're doing because here and we're talking exhausting, about. I might add. Uh, well, yeah, I guess so. You know, holding the the the, the great sifter uh, all the time for everything that JP two or Regolia says. So uh, it's it's uh, it is something that's completely different because you have a living Roman Pontiff. You have to be subject to him. Um, and we're talking about legislation from the past here. Well, the the last objection is the one I led with originally, Father, because it's the most emotionally charged and gotcha sort of statement, which is, well, you should obey, you know, the legislation of the last living pope. You know, he was a pope, and you're supposed to obey that. And I suppose, obviously, parts of that argument are dealt with in at least two other points we've already said before, but. If someone says that, how how would you respond? Well, you're, uh, because they were dealt with before on the basis of objective principles in church law uh, on cessation and on uh, stability, 
you can't really make that charge because uh, the uh, if uh, the principles that we've invoked were uh, truly contrary to the virtue of obedience, then uh, the theologians who proposed them, the great canonists who proposed them, would not have done so. So they're, they're, uh, from that very fact, there uh, can be no contradiction in uh, in the principles, and that's the uh, that's the basis for it. You know, these the, these great minds of the church would not have laid down the principles on cessation and perpetuity uh, if it had truly been contrary to the virtue of obedience. Want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. That's Father Anthony Chicada, who's been walking us through the, the legal questions behind uh, the use or non-use of the Pius XII changes to the Holy Week, also referred to as the, the pre-55 Holy Week, uh, is, is not the Pius XII revision. We want to remind you that Trad Controversies is a production of the Restoration Radio Network, all rights reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be quite easily obtained by writing to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. The next set of articles I want to discuss, Father, are the changes themselves, and you can find these articles at fatherchicada.com, which is a, a website also titled Quidlibet, in which Father deals with, um, shall we say, one-off questions or questions of particular interest, and they don't fit the, the normal uh, academic style that we would find on traditionalmass.org. This is sort of Father Chicada unscripted, as much as you can find uh, a perfectionist organ player in such a state. Father, as as I was reading through some of these articles in preparation for today's episode, I thought to myself, as someone who studies so often, do you, as you're setting up or getting ready, do you ever ponder the the changes, uh, as you're putting on, let's say, violet vestments for Palm Sunday, do you think about the the the, the Holy Week changes and how what a departure it is? Or um, I figure you're one of the people that has dealt dealt with it so much in your writing that it's some in a, in a way it's it's always in the back of your mind, perhaps all these changes. Uh, yes, actually, uh, actually, I do, because that understanding the history of these different elements in the liturgy really gives you a perspective when it comes to, uh, when it comes to celebrating it, uh, myself, or say, functioning as a church musician, you really, uh, you're uh, attentive to the, the uh, details, and, and uh, you understand why in many instances, the historical reasons for why you're doing what you're doing. And uh, of course, that only leads to a greater appreciation for it. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it does occur to me quite a bit. Well, uh, if you go to fathercicada.com, you go to the right-hand side and you can look at the tags. Um, just click on Holy Week as one of the tags, and you're going to get all six of the articles that Father has penned so far to deal with this. And we're just going to go by various days. And again, this is just a, a one-hour episode, so we can't really get too deep into the changes. But I think Father can give us a good gloss on each of these days. And we're going to start with Palm Sunday. Father, tell us what was traditional, what was changed, and, and what we should take away from that. All right. Bri- briefly, uh, what you had, in essence, were uh, two masses. 
the the the, uh, the ceremony for the blessing of palms was the survival of a of um, a rite of mass uh, with its own propers that was used to bless the palms, and then one went to celebrate the passion uh, aspect of Palm Sunday in another place. So uh, you have the traditional ceremony this this little mass with the equivalent, say, of uh, uh, of an uh, introit, uh, a, a collect, an epistle, uh, a uh, gospel. There's even a preface. You sing the Sanctus, and then these these different blessing prayers. Long, very beautiful uh, blessing prayers in French are, are actually of French origin. That is to say, are uh, recited. The palms are blessed. Then uh, you have a. Uh, the distribution of palms. You have a procession uh, outside, um, and the, uh, at the door of the church, there is the this hymn of Saint Theodulf of Orléans that's uh, 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 that is is sung, Gloria Laus, and then the subdeacon knocks on the door, symbolizing the the uh, Christ. Uh, demanding entry into Jerusalem, and then there's the procession into the church itself, uh, at which you, uh, uh, you have a, a mass, uh, at which the the passion is uh, chanted or is recited. So that's the the beginning of the traditional ceremony. Um, you know, what you have in uh, the uh, 55 version is that uh, it's stripped down. You have a, a collect or two. Uh, the celebrant uh, recites the blessing prayers uh, facing the people and then uh, hands out the palms, and then you have your procession. And uh, so you have this the, the, the abolition of all this, this uh, ancient ceremonial. And, uh, you know, something that, that of course, is, is a great pity. I had um, uh, someone send me a link on Palm Sunday of uh, the blessing of, of, of palms conducted in the 55 rite by a priestess of the traditional mass. And I mean, it was really strikingly bare. It, it really uh, struck me, you know, how much, uh, in fact, was missing and how much it was like the Novus Ordo. So there's all the stuff that just, uh, that simply went, that was simply cut out. Uh, and uh, reduced to its minimum. And then um, you had the phenomenon where the prayers at the foot of the altar uh, were cut out in the 55 rite. So the, the uh, priest, when he comes back to the church, goes up uh, to the altar and then uh, reads the introite. There are two chunks of the Passion that are cut out. The Creed is uh, cut out, and the last... Um, the last gospel is removed as well. So you have this this uh, uh, idea of stripping down the liturgy on Palm Sunday. Well, and if anyone's dismayed by listening to fathers, all the cuts that were made, uh, you can you can see it getting cut to ribbons. I have to say, we, I wouldn't just call it the 1955. I would say it's the Novus Ordo. This is one of those painful times of year that anyone who cel- who goes to the Motu Mass or a 1958 Mass. Um, they get to celebrate in communion with the Novus Ordo because it's the same ceremonies that the Novus Ordo uses. Yes, I remember it. Uh, uh, remember this being done at uh, in uh, 
1970 at St. Rita's uh, in Milwaukee, which was the, the Palm Sunday, which was the premier day for the Novus Ordo in English. And I remember being a, uh, a, being a part of that and, uh, you know, seeing this, this little simple ceremony. And it's, it's virtually identical. Well, speaking of simple ceremonies, uh, there's the new office of Tenebrae that comes in with the uh, with these changes as well. First of all, I suppose, Father, since we haven't, I, I don't think we've done a, um, a restoration radio episode on Tenebrae. It reminds me that, that definitely we should do that sometime. Can you tell our listeners what that is and then talk about the changes? All right. Uh, tenebrae refers to uh, three ceremonies, uh, three religious services held in the evening of uh, Holy Week. And what they are is they're chunks of the divine office. Um, that the uh, priest wouldn't uh, normally uh, recite from his, that is to say, part of the breviary. Only they're uh, chanted in, in, in church. There's a series of psalms and then uh, uh, scripture readings and patristic readings. Uh, and uh, the uh, progressively, as the uh, church also gets darker as, as, as the darkness increases um, with the sun going down. Uh, the candles in the sanctuary of the church are extinguished. There's this uh, contraption called a hearse that has a certain number of candles on it. And after you recite each psalm, um, after each psalm, one of the candles is uh, extinguished. And uh, finally, at the end of the whole long rite, there's only uh, the, the Benedictus is chanted. All of the, the candle altars that uh, the altar candles are then extinguished. The um, Benedictus is is sung, and the one remaining lit candle is is hidden, and the Miserere is is uh, 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 chanted in uh, the dark. In the church, and then there's the um, the strepitus, which is the um, uh, noise, the 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 uh, noise, symbolic noise of the earthquake at the death of Christ, which is made by uh, uh, beating your uh, books on the pews or by using the the Holy Week uh, clackers to make this this racket at the end. And then the one candle is uh, placed at the top of the hearse, and the ceremony ends uh, at that point. So it's a very dramatic ceremony. You have all of this uh, long chanting in uh, uh, a church that's becoming darker. Uh, then uh, at the end, you have this this uh, uh, great dramatic noise. So this was uh, conducted in uh, cathedral churches and religious churches uh, on the evening of uh, Wednesday evening, Thursday evening, and Friday evening and Holy Saturday. And it's, it's one of the most mystical rites of the church. And uh, it, was, it was very, very impressive. Although I, I suppose some parents might be grateful that there's no no once a year sanction for their children to do what they do throughout the year with their books uh, on the <laughs> yes, pews. That's right. That might have been that might have been a pastoral reason to to abolish that, uh, Father. 
But well, the, the the kids do get a kick out of it. They get a kick out of the earthquake at the end. The altar boys love it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they're half they're half wondering whether they're going to be struck down afterwards because uh, they can't possibly be allowed to do this. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it, 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 what happened to this in, in the Holy Week in the New Holy Week is that all of the mystical symbolism was pulled out of it. It was no longer done in the darkness at night. Um, you you did it in the morning. You didn't have the extinguishing of candles. You didn't have the um, uh, you know the, anything like the encroaching darkness. Uh, and uh, so it was was made. Uh, all of the mystical symbolism was just pulled out of it, and it was turned into a celebration of the divine office in the morning. And that was it. And I, you know, I, and I'm I'm thinking now. Father, we removed the the knocking at the at the door for Palm Sunday, and we're removing this. And and I wonder, I wonder why Bugnini was so bothered by this. Was was he worried that someone was was coming for judgment? And he heard that, maybe he was worried that the devil would come and knock on his door. Right. Who's, I, I'm tired of all this door knocking. I'm just going to get rid of it in the liturgy altogether. Uh, yeah, you'd update it to a bell or something like that. Uh. Well, speaking of bells, that gets us to the Maundy, and Maundy Thursday, also known as Holy Thursday. And uh, what were the changes? And, and we're not speaking here of changes like deciding to wash the feet of Muslims or, or women. I think that's probably a bridge too far uh, for even Bugnini. Um, sure. You'd have, to, you'd have to wait many years for that. But uh, what, were, what were some of the other changes we saw for, for Maundy Thursday? Well, of the, uh, of the changes, this was the... Um, uh, this was the least changed uh, as far as the uh, uh, the, re, uh, the rites. Uh, you had, the, in the traditional rite, you had your Mass in the morning all the time. And, and with this, uh, these changes, it was moved to the evening. In itself, there's nothing wrong with that. That's simply a, uh, simply a time change. Uh, however, you have these indications of kind of what is um, uh, to come? Different things are sliced off, so the uh, the creed no longer appears in the Holy Thursday Mass. The last gospel no longer appears. Then you have the uh, during communion, you have a phenomenon which you now see in the Novus Ordo, a responsorial psalm that uh, is sung during communion. The 55 rites have you do the washing of the feet, if you want, in the uh, rite of the Mass itself. Now, the the traditional practice for uh, the washing of the feet was you had a separate ceremony apart from the Mass, generally in the afternoon, in which people's feet were washed. But um, this was now included in the Mass. And you had the... At, at the end of the traditional rite, the Blessed Sacrament is taken to an elaborately decorated repository, in a, generally in a separate chapel, and you adore the Blessed Sacrament until it's removed during the Good Friday service uh, the following day. Uh, so you had these, the, the, traditionally this practice of having a very decorated repository with candles and even some lilies and lights and um, uh, to uh, honor the Blessed Sacrament. But uh, the, in the 55 rite, uh, they recommend that you uh, not do this, that it'd be very, you know, very s- 
severe and uh, very severe and, and simple, and that um, you do not continue the adoration uh, until the next day, uh, the mass of the pre-sanctified, which is what was done in the traditional rite. But you just it just sort of ends at midnight. So um, uh, and that is also the the practice in the Novus Ordo. So you have this. What you have here is this this cutting away of things, and you know a uh, an element of uh, taking away some honors traditionally paid to the Blessed Sacrament. Well, I noticed at the end of your article on this, Father, you say that the, the 1955 Holy Week rites make it nearly impossible to watch just one hour with our Lord. But, I mean, you have to keep in mind they may be trying to restore this to apostolic tradition, which would include falling asleep during that hour. <laughs> so maybe that's what they were looking to do, is just skip the um, hour and, and go right to bed. Well, perhaps, but uh, I suspect it was a little more. Uh, it would have a little more to do with the thirty pieces of silver business, but that's another issue. <laughs> well, uh, the thirty pieces of silver do lead us to Good Friday, and this is the, probably, for me uh, personally, the most disturbing uh, day of the of the the Holy Week changes that I experienced the first time, again, that I went through, that I came over from the Novus Ordo, that I thought, oh, I'm safe, I'm, I'm at the traditional Mass now, and I don't have to worry about these things. And I went to a Good Friday in the, in the 1962, uh, within, a, a, within the SSPX, they celebrated 1962, and, and I was just shocked by, by what I saw. And and again, all the, the changes are different for different days, but I, I, perhaps maybe it's because it's Good Friday that it hits home with me a bit more. Father, what are your reflections on the changes for Good Friday? Well, before, uh, uh, in the traditional rites, it was called the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified. And uh, you had a number of, of um, uh, elements, in fact, in the latter part of the service that were sort of taken from the Mass, even though Mass was not celebrated that day. But uh, there were uh, a number of odd things about the um, uh, 55 Good Friday service that paralleled the Novus Ordo, that the uh, celebrant conducts the service uh, from uh, the sedilla, or a seat on the side rather than the altar. And uh, this remind, reminds one of the Novus Ordo president's chair that you try to get the priest away from the altar as much as possible. Uh, then he doesn't read a scripture reading if a minister chants it. That's another innovation. Um, he, uh, the, the, the solemn orations on Good Friday, the text had a, a, a series of changes. First of all, that the uh, prayer for heretics and schismatics has been sort of rebranded as the prayer for the unity of Christians. So you, you see the, the relabeling. <laughs> I think rebrand is probably a good term. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, if they used an ad agency or something like that to do that. But then the old right directed that no genuflection be married in the prayers for the Jews, while the new right uh, directs that genuflection be made there. Uh, incidentally, what happened to that uh, prayer is that John the 23rd 
uh, himself changed the text of uh, changed the text of the prayer. So there was a further change that you find in, say, the 1962 Missal. Uh, the rite for the adoration of the cross was changed. Uh, people in the traditional rite would come up to the, the um, communion rail and uh, kiss the cross. Uh, then uh, all of the, the different mystical ceremonies that you had at the end of this uh, Mass of the Pre-Sanctified were abolished. You didn't have a solemn procession of Blessed Sacrament where you sang this hymn, Vestig- uh, Vexilla Regis. Uh, the elements of the offertory rite were gone. But the one of the most striking things to me, and you mentioned it already, was that all the people were supposed to recite the Pater Noster, the Our Father, together. And that is completely contrary to the liturgical tradition of the Roman Church. And in fact, you, you, you find that fact mentioned in uh, the writings of St. Augustine. So you had uh, uh, this, this different, uh, again, once again, a series of cutting away and, and changes that prefigure the Novus Ordo. So it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's another trial balloon. And when, uh, if you are uh, attentive to the different details of the Novus Ordo and you look at a um, celebration of Good Friday in the 55 rite, uh, these are the things that you see. Well, and it's, and again, it's one of those things when you, you hear uh, the silence broken and uh, people reciting around you, it just, it, it cracks that, that, uh, that veil that the Roman rite gives us in a, in a low mass or in, in a non-sung ceremony. And it's, it's, it's strange. It really is. Because it, again, it feels like for those of us who grew up in the Novus Ordo, who only knew the Novus Ordo our whole lives, as I did, it's, it, it feels oddly and horribly familiar. I mean, the next thing, I'm waiting for some Marty Hagen uh, and, um, and nightmares to return after that. Yeah. So, well, the, there's, there's a huge change for, uh, for the vigil, for, for um, Holy Saturday. And I suppose that the big change for, for most people is the, the conception of the evening, that midnight ceremony as normative. We, we, those of us who grew up in the Novus Ordo, I, I remember staying up and my, my, uh, my parents would encourage me to, we'd sleep between let's say eight and 10. So we'd be ready to stay up for the vigil. And it was one of the mm-hmm. few times of year we were allowed to stay up so late because it was a very important church ceremony. So mm-hmm. I suppose that's the first thing. Father, for people who are used to this idea of, of a midnight ceremony as very traditional and, and ancient, um, how would you answer that? And I suppose then you can lead us into the other changes that were, were, were less, let's say, in your face. Yeah, the uh, change of time, again, is not something that's, that's necessarily, would, would have been necessarily objectionable, okay? But... This was uh, yet another trial balloon, and it was something the, the the change of time was supposed to be a restoration, but in fact it ended up being completely bogus. Uh, we were uh, told that well by having in the evening that this is what the early early Christians did that you had a mass maybe around midnight something like that, and uh, uh, that's this was simply a restoration, but. 
if you understand anything about the way the liturgy worked in the ancient church, uh, you can see that the uh, New Holy Week ceremony for the vigil doesn't correspond to that. You spent all night in the church. You, you, you started when the sun was going down, and you didn't have mass until the morning. There's no no business. There were no naps, you know, and waking up at ten o'clock, and you you had all of these readings in uh, Latin and Greek and litanies, where the petitions would be uh, uh, sung seven times, and uh, great crowds of people uh, being baptized, and it was it was a serious business. Uh, that was at least ref, uh, reflected in the length of the ceremonies in the traditional rite. But here, in in, in um, you ended up in the uh, Pius XII rite with just four readings, and that was it. So it, it's it's uh, bogus from that point of view. And the idea for a Christian celebrating Mass in the middle of the night was very much uh, against the ancient practice of the Church. You did it in the morning. Mm. So right from there, it's 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 something that's bogus. Well, and I I suppose you bring up an important point when you've got hundreds or even thousands of people getting ready to be baptized. Some of those traditions are just uh, I I don't want to say background music, but to make sure that the the uh, the the non-catechumens were able to sing and encourage and and sort of give a, a background ceremony to to the baptisms that were going on. Sure, sure. Uh, so it's it's a completely different uh, the 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 justification for the the time change was completely empty, and uh, the the way in fact that it's it's worked out now is uh, with the Novus Ordo that that's all been moved to the evening, uh, to the early evening, so you kind of get it over with. And as I said, there's there's definitely a lot of changes. Father has just glossed over some of them. You can find this article, as I said, all of the articles on the changes themselves on Cleedlybet, which is fatherchicada.com. The last thing I want to speak about within the context of Holy Week before we we uh, we conclude today's episode, Father, is the the issue. And I, I think I had uh, I had meant to ask this. Uh, regarding um, the the prayer for the Jews that had been changed in in 62, and there was this uh, all of this controversy about whether the Society of Saint Pius X would accept it or not, and I just wanted to spend a few minutes addressing that controversy uh, and and reflecting on it. Okay, well the. Uh... The text of the prayer for the Jews in the traditional rite speaks of the uh, unbelief of the Jews, their blindness, uh, the the idea that um, the, 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 uh, their perfidy, their unbelief, uh, and so on. And this was uh, considered to be a uh, obviously in an ecumenical context was considered to be something that was, uh, uh, you know, quite incorrect. Uh, to do, and that that uh, the, this prayer uh, should be should be modified or uh, abolished. What in fact happened is John the Twenty Third removed some of the uh, phrases from uh, from it, referring to the perfidy of uh, of uh, the uh, Jews, and uh, eventually when the um, 
post-Vatican II Church under Benedict XVI permitted the uh, celebration of uh, Mass using the uh, 62 Missal, there were still objections to what was left in the prayer about the conversion of the Jews. So he, in turn, uh, put out a new prayer uh, that was uh, to be inserted in the 1962 missile. So it was quite quite a bit of, of uh, controversy. The thing to be remembered, however, is that the actual text of the uh, Good Friday prayers for the Jews is uh, a part of a series of, of the most ancient collects in the uh, church's arsenal of prayers. These go back, you know, you might say almost to the day of the catacombs. And the idea that that uh, John the Twenty Third and that Benedict the Sixteenth would dare to change these prayers is really completely outrageous. Well, and that uh, again brings us to the the conclusion of our our episode today, Father. And I I wanted to start I wanted to end where we started by alluding to the fact that this is no longer a fringe issue. Uh, I think you we, you pointed out uh, as we were talking before the show uh, uh, that there was an article recently about this issue, and it, indeed our uh, a sponsor for one of your shows from last season, Roman, get the fact that there was even an impetus to uh, to move forward on the 1955 missile uh, that there is, and that people from the fraternity of Saint Peter <laughs> were interested in this. That if you're buying a 1955 missile, you've already dealt with the issue of Holy Week. You're, you're not going to be using the revised Holy Week. You're going to be using the, the pre-55 version. So uh, based on that article that you referred to and in the current situation, having looked back at your first article on this that, that hit the internet in 2006, we're almost 10 years on. Um, what are your observations? Well, it's extremely encouraging uh, that uh, people are coming around to this. And in fact, uh, the there's more and more documentation to uh, support this particular position. The, the article that I mentioned to you before was uh, uh, written by, uh, I believe, uh, um, uh, Father Stefano Carusi, who is, uh, he's either Peter Fraternity or the Institute of Christ the King. And, I mean, he discovered even more and more uh, divergences between the traditional practices and what was done in the, the 55 Holy Week. So this is, in fact, is a, a hot topic and is one that, that people are very uh, aware of. And I think I find that very, very encouraging that, that uh, people are indeed uh, coming around to it. That bodes very well for the future. Well, Father, I, I know that we talked before about uh, the fact that you got your organ and you got a, a chance to trot it out for Holy Week. How did that go? Uh, very well. In fact, on the SGG no, site, no, org, no organ malfunctions, I'm hoping. Uh, no, and the, it was a successful transplant. And no, no one had to die as a result of the transplant. <laughs> Um, the um, uh, you can find on the sgg.org site, in fact, a uh, recording of the Marsh trumpet fanfare that uh, I used on Holy Saturday to show off the trumpets of the organ. Uh, soon we are going to have a uh, <clears throat> a blessing and dedication uh, 
uh, once we get uh, the memorial plaque, question of the memorial plaque all settled for the organ. Uh, and uh, this past Sunday, uh, our uh, young organist here played the uh, famous Bach Toccata and Fugue in, in D minor after the high mass. So we're going to be putting up a recording of that at uh, some point. So those of you who participated in our uh, uh, campaign uh, can uh, enjoy some of the fruits of it. That sounds wonderful. Is there anything else going on at SGG or SGG Resources that you want to keep us abreast of before I let you get back to work today? Well, we get we have a um, uh, work of human hands is available once again, and uh, thanks to your generosity in that particular campaign, and we are now uh, shipping orders uh, orders for that. So uh, please spread the word. And uh, I will be doing another uh, uh, email promo for that uh, very soon in the future. So you can watch for that if you're on our email list. And some might be asking, Father, uh, any chance of getting uh, more videos of your, your work of human hands, the, the video series that has uh, been long loved and followed? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm certainly hoping so, but um, the uh, my time has been... Uh, very much occupied these days in doing radio programs. So surprisingly, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we, we'll have someone else to blame for that, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are looking forward to those windows get completed. If you haven't checked out uh, Father's videos there at, at the Work of Human Hands YouTube channel, which is probably youtube.com forward slash Work of Human Hands, I'm guessing, Father. And uh, if you haven't seen those videos, they're a great companion to the book. They're, I wouldn't say they're a great substitute. They're a great companion for the book, or they're a great way to get you interested in the book. It is a scholarly work. It is quite a bit to get into, but I would encourage you, if you've missed out on it, it's been out of print for just a little while, uh, get a copy of it. And as Father said, you can find it on sggresources.org. Father, thanks so much for your time, and we look forward to uh, – having you on other radio programs this month and um, thank you for coming back from Holy Week. And we thank you and, and look forward to meeting you again sometime on uh, Restoration Radio. Thank you, Father. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember, if you have any questions for Father about anything that we talked about in today's episode, you can send an email to controversies at truerestoration.org. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.